Voyage. This episode contains descriptions of rape and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Well, I was pretty sure that it was going to be time for me to die, that whatever music I picked out was going to be the last thing I ever heard. And so I thought, what, what music do I want to die to? During the course of this series, you're going to hear a lot of different people. You'll hear from the now 91-year-old Texas lawman who took Jason's initial statement and testified at trial, the prosecuting attorney, the EMT who accompanied Jason more than 80 miles to the hospital. And you'll hear more from Jason's son, Noah, about his experience of this time in their lives. But today, you're only going to hear from Jason about her experience of this brutal crime. Some of the things you'll hear today are going to sound strange, and maybe even a little unbelievable, but it's all true. This was totally foreign to me, these, these feelings of um, someone watching me, or this uh, dialogue that I had going on with myself just in my head, the feeling that I was being warned to leave. I had never had anything like that happen to me. And like many people, uh, we don't pay attention to those gut feelings that we have. Now that said, since this incident, I have become much more adept at recognizing those feelings and paying attention to those feelings and honoring those feelings because I think uh, that we have senses that we're not really aware of um, that may be helping us to understand our world. And as I found out later from one of the law enforcement officers, the perpetrator had been in my house the whole time I was there, moving from room to room, watching me. They found evidence of that. And so I have no doubt that he was in my bedroom standing behind a door when I had that strong feeling. When the event happened, I was standing on my sidewalk looking at this gigantic orange moon that was rising out from the desert. It was spectacular. That's not even a word that describes it. It was breathtaking. And I was just standing there marveling at it in the quiet. There's no sound in the desert, really. At that time, there weren't very many cars. Uh, no planes fly over this part of the world. It's not on any pathway. It's silent. And I was standing there in that silence when suddenly an arm came around from behind me, grabbed my mouth, and stuck a knife to my neck. At first, I thought someone was playing a joke on me. And then I realized there was something sharp sticking in my neck, and it wasn't a joke. And I tried to scream, and he told me in Spanish, callate, which means be quiet. And that's when the realization that um, this was not a joke. Someone had grabbed me and he started pulling me 
toward my bedroom and then into my bedroom. He tied, had my hands behind my back, put a blindfold over my eyes, and it was all happening so fast that I was trying to make sense of it. I was thinking as he drugged me into the bedroom, well, obviously I can guess what's going to happen next, but how can he rape me if I'm all tied up? By now he's got my hands tied, he's got a gag around my mouth, he's got a blindfold on me. And I thought, this is very strange. Uh, why is he tying me up? Well, at that instant, he started pulling me backwards toward the door of my bedroom. And I realized we were going out on the deck and he turned, which would take us to the side of the deck. We walked down the stairs and why is he taking me through the backyard? Well, we crossed the fence. I had a, an adobe fence around the house, opened the gate and suddenly we're out in the desert and he's more or less dragging me because I can't see anything, stumbling through the cactus and the brush. And in the moment, I was terrified. But while I was terrified, I was amazed. For one thing, he was speaking to me in Spanish and I understood him. Growing up in Texas, you hear Spanish all around you, even more so today, but even when I was growing up, you would hear Spanish. I didn't really ever have a formal class in it, but I, I knew the accent and I knew how to pronounce words. I knew the spelling is a little different. E, for example, is pronounced A. And so I just basically had a vocabulary. I had words. But as far as sitting down and having a conversation, I didn't have the understanding of the language to that extent where I could just carry on a conversation. But when this event happened, it was a completely different thing. Suddenly, I, I understood every word he said, and I answered him in fluent Spanish. People have asked whether it was some sort of mystical experience that enabled me to just suddenly start being fluent in another language? Or was it the background that I had growing up in Texas and having traveled through different countries, Spanish-speaking countries, all of them? To me, in the middle of this event, it was miraculous. I even heard myself saying things to him in his language while I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm speaking Spanish. I was amazed. It was a miracle. For another thing, this voice was telling me in my head not to be afraid. And so all of this was happening simultaneously. And I couldn't really grasp the situation until we walked pretty far out in the desert. He took the gag off of my mouth. I was still blindfolded. He untied my hands. He pushed me to my knees. And that was the first 
sexual act that happened. I couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe that this was happening to me in the middle of this beautiful desert with this gorgeous moon shining. But it was happening and it was sickening and yet this voice, every time it spoke to me, it made me calm. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. And in fact, it told me that I wasn't alone, that it would be with me all night, and that if I would listen and do exactly what it said, everything would turn out all right. And so through that evening, through the next 12, 13 hours, the voice would come to me intermittently because as each step of this journey started, panic would start rising just from my gut and coming up, telling me now is when he's going to kill me. Now is when he's going to stab me. Now it's going to be horrible. And the voice would come in and say, I told you not to give in to your fear. Do not give in to fear. It said that over and over. You may know the oft-cited example of what's called hysterical strength. A mother lifts a car off the ground to rescue her child. According to the newspaper The Guardian, one of the early claims of hysterical strength was from the creator of the Hulk, Jack Kirby, who said he was inspired to invent the iconic character after seeing a woman rescue her child from beneath a car. There are more recent examples. ABC News reported that in 2012, a 15-year-old lifted a car off his grandfather and saved his life. In 2013, Fox News reported an Oregon man pinned under a 3,000-pound tractor was rescued by his teenage daughters, who seemingly impossibly lifted the tractor enough for their father to slip out. NPR reported a similar story only with a 72-year-old man rescuing his son-in-law by lifting a car off him in 2013. These seemingly unexplainable occurrences, like Jason suddenly being able to converse in Spanish and hearing a voice guiding her through this traumatic situation, there are things that our minds and bodies do in the face of a life-and-death threat that cannot be easily explained. Jason should know she did try to find the answers. I spent the next five years talking to different experts, so-called experts, preachers, ministers, rabbis, psychoanalysts, psychologists, asking them what this voice was. I had to know. Yes, the experience was horrendous. It changed my life. It changed my son's life. It was horribly damaging. And yet, what happened spiritually out there on that other level? Was it the Stockholm Syndrome? Was it just my voice, my own sense of trying to stay alive? Was it something spiritual? And every single person I talked to told me it was something spiritual, be whatever you call it, God, Jesus, the universe, angels, who knows. But I came to realize that we do have these senses like 
our sense of taste or touch or smell. We have other senses that we're not aware of, that we can't explain, and that maybe are heightened in the moment of events that are that we're not able to understand with any of our regular senses. Back during the event, the voice kept Jason going. Sure enough, I would become calm and time would go on. We came to another part of the desert. There are these big gullies in this part of the desert and they're known as arroyos. The one we were walking into was pretty deep. In fact, I'm five foot three and just the top of my head came to the top of the arroyo. So we could not be seen from the road that was probably, I don't know, half a mile away, if anybody had been looking. But the next thing that happened in this arroyo was he actually told me to take my clothes off and to lie down, which I did. The voice was telling me to comply with everything he said and to not be afraid. So most of my energy went toward not being afraid. But there was another part of me analyzing the situation. By now he had taken the gag off so I could talk with him. And he wanted to take the, he took the blindfold off, but I kept my eyes closed. I had started using the biggest coping skill known to any rape victim or any victim probably of any kind, which is bargaining. And I told him in perfect Spanish, I didn't need to open my eyes. I, I haven't seen you. This is okay. This is what happens in life. Don't worry about it. I can't identify you. And he would say, open your eyes, abierto sus ojos. And no, no, I don't need to open my eyes. It's okay. I understand these things happen. And he repeated himself. So finally, he demanded that I open my eyes. I was terrified because I thought in my mind I would be looking at a total monster. Anyone who could do these things had to be a monster. And when I opened my eyes, there was this light even bigger than the moonlight and wider than the moonlight. It was like some sort of white light all around the desert. And as I looked at him, he was looking toward me, but past me. You know how you can look at someone but not look at their face, you're looking over their shoulder. That's what he was doing and he was white as a sheet and his eyes were these broad round pools staring at something behind me and I thought what in the world is going on here what is he looking at and the voice said forgive this man and in my head I said well I'm not forgiving him what do you mean forgive this man he's going to kill me Forgive this man. No, I'm not going to forgive him. He's going to make my child an orphan. My child may think I deserted him. People go missing all the time out in this desert and they're never found. No, I'm not going to forgive him. And suddenly 
like standing in a strong shower. Forgiveness drenched me. It came crashing over my head, from my head to my toes. I was filled with forgiveness. I was filled with forgiveness. And at that moment, I spread my arms and walked toward him and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I hugged him and patted him on his back. And when I stepped away, he had this look of terror on his face. We asked everyone we interviewed for this series if they were surprised that Jason was able to forgive her assailant. You'll hear their answers in a later episode, and they may surprise you. The assailant's reaction, too, will come back again later in this story. As powerful a moment as this was for Jason, it left an equally strong impression in a different way upon the perpetrator of this crime. I don't know what he saw that night. I only know what I saw. And after that, I think he squatted down in the Arroyo, told me to sit down, told me to take off my clothes, which I did, and he raped me. Now, I remember thinking while that was happening to claw the dirt with my hand to get the dirt under my fingernails in case it could be used for some kind of evidence. I didn't know, but I was clawing the dirt with my right hand. He finished. He asked me if I wanted a cigarette. I said yes. Uh, When I finished the cigarette and put out the butt of the cigarette, I put it in my pocket, hopefully for more evidence, should my body ever be found. I broke off a twig from probably a greasewood tree and put it in my pocket, just thinking the worst was going to happen. Maybe they'd find my body. So at this point, he stood up and started looking out of the arroyo and cursing in Spanish and saying things like, where are they? They're supposed to be here. And again, terror struck me. Oh my God, he has friends who are coming. This was all planned. There'll be more of them. I can't do this. I can't live and have this happen. And the voice said, I told you not to be afraid. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. And so I pretended I I didn't really understand what he was saying, but I started asking him questions like, what's what's the matter? Why are you mad? And I sort of understood that he expected someone to pick him up and take him back to the river that it was getting late in the night and it was 17 miles from where we were to the river crossing into Mexico. And so the voice said, tell him you'll help him. So I said, well, that's not a problem. I have a truck. I can drive you to the river. And I elaborated on that story. I said, I have money at my house. If you need money, We can go back, and he said, I already got your money. And I said, oh, did you get the money in the top of the chimney on the mantle? And I was acting like I couldn't find the right words. And he looked and said, no. And I said, well, I have more money. 
So he said, come on, and started walking further south toward this small mountain. He said, I'm going to get my things and you can take me to the river. So we walked up part way of this mountain and he told me to stop and said that his camp was just on the other side of this small mountain. And I knew where he was talking about. I knew then that he was employed by a man who owned an RV park and a restaurant and that he was one of the workers. He said, I'm going to tie you up again and I'm going to go over the mountain and get my things. And if you try to leave, I will kill you. I will find you and I will kill you. And so again, I started bargaining because truly, I know what else lives out in the desert, coyotes, mountain lions, rattlesnakes. So I said, oh, you don't have to tie me up. I, I won't leave, don't, don't tie me up. And um, he was increasingly angry. Don't be ridiculous, don't be stupid. That's an idiot thing to say. The rattlesnakes are not gonna get you, the vipers are not gonna get you. And I said, you don't have to tie me up. I'll, I'll stay right here, no. And he said, if you don't shut up, I'll just kill you right now. And so I shut up and I let him tie my feet together and my hands behind my back. He put a gag around my mouth, but he didn't put a blindfold on. So as his footsteps finished climbing to the top of that hill, and then receded down the other side, I could look out over this beautiful desert. I could see off in the distance my friend Evelyn's ranch. I could hear her dogs barking, and I thought, it's probably a good thing he did tie me up because I think I could probably run over there. Of course, I wouldn't have been able to but I may have tried had I not been tied up. So I sat there and prayed until I heard his footsteps coming back. And as he got about halfway down the hill, I heard him stumble and fall and uh, curse because he had hurt himself. By the time he got down to where I was sitting and yanked on the ties behind me to make me stand up, he was cursing, you goddamn bitch. So the vipers didn't get you after all, did they? I just remained quiet. The voice told me not to say anything, not to be afraid. So he had a new backpack with him and he just simply said, let's go. So we started walking down the mountain and as we did, the ties that he had used to tie me up with, the strips of a blanket, he started pitching over the sides of the Arroyo. Every few steps he would pitch one of the ties. And it reminded me of the Hansel and Gretel story of how they left a trail of crumbs. And it, it really gave me heart because I thought, if they ever do try to find me, they'll find these rags. In fact, we spoke to the man who would later walk this trail, literally following in Jason's footsteps. You'll hear from him in the next episode. So I was feeling a little bit better. I was feeling elated because we were going back to my home. 
even though that's where this whole nightmare had started, my house seemed to feel a whole lot safer than being out in the middle of this desert with nothing around me. So we started making our way back toward my house and he got a little bit turned around and actually ended up closer to the highway in front of my house than he wanted to be. And so cursing again, he pushed me down and he himself lay flat on the ground and he was cursing that we were too close to the road. And at that moment, I felt completely exhausted and how nice it felt just to lie down on the ground and maybe he would just leave. And then the voice said, you're not tired. You're not tired at all. Get up. And so we got up and walked away from the road toward the um, fence that we had crawled under and went back the same way. And as we stood outside the fence of my house, he said, you better hope no one is home. And there had been one of those wonderful dances in Lahitas that night. And it seemed that every light in my house was on. And I thought, this is terrible. Out here when somebody drives past your house, if all the lights are on, even though it may be two o'clock in the morning, that's like, come on by, you know, we'll sit and talk here, we'll have another glass of wine, whatever. So I was terrified that any of my friends who may have been at the dance would think that and stop. Fortunately, no one did. We got back to the house and he said, now where's this money? And so I went to my purse and opened my wallet and sure enough, all of my money was gone. And I turned around and I said, it's gone. And he had this look on his face, sort of like a child that was being scolded or had been caught. And I said, did, did you take my money? And he just got furious at that and said, where's the rest of the money you said? And so I said, no, I, I meant this money in my purse. He still had the knife in his hand. He had this butcher knife the entire night. He marched me back into the living room, out onto the patio, and back into my bedroom. Now, at the beginning of this whole sequence of events, he had asked me if I had a gun. A gun? No, I don't have a gun. I, I, don't, I don't have any guns. Sure enough, my husband had left his 22 hanging on my wall in the bedroom, which I really had never even noticed. I didn't know how to use a gun. I didn't know how to load a gun. I didn't know anything about guns. But he saw that immediately and threw me across the room and screamed out, I thought you said you didn't have a gun. So I was on the opposite side of the room from him and I said, I didn't know I had it. It was my ex-husband's gun. I didn't even know it was there. And the voice said, ask him if there are any bullets in the gun. So I said, are there bullets in the gun? And he started unscrewing parts of the gun, taking this part off and that part off. 
to this day, I don't know enough about guns to even tell you what the parts were, but pretty soon these bullets started falling out and I said, oh, there are bullets. How many bullets are there? And he started counting and then he started trying to put the gun back together and he couldn't get it all back together and got really frustrated and just threw the whole thing over against the side of the wall and turned around and said, put on some fucking music. Well, I was pretty sure that it was going to be time for me to die, that whatever music I picked out was going to be the last thing I ever heard. And so I thought, what, what music do I want to die to? One of my favorite albums at the time had been the soundtrack of an obscure little film, I think a French film, and it was just beautiful electronic music that reminded me of the desert. I could hear it anywhere and it would transport me to the desert. And so I turned it on and he was still really frustrated and angry, I guess, about the gun situation and screamed at me, turn that fucking music off. Put on some dance music. So I thought, okay, he wants faster music. I know. I'll put on the Bonnie Tyler tape. The name of the song I played was, I Need a Hero. It's a really fast song. It's got a great beat. And I truly did need a hero. So in the course of being in the bedroom, seeing his frustration at being unable to get the gun to work, seeing his frustration with my questions, it became obvious to me that he would get very frustrated when he had more than one thing to think about. If I started asking him questions or giving him different choices, he, he wasn't the brightest color in the box, so to speak. It made him nervous. And so with the faster music on, he told me to get in bed again. I did. It was probably the most brutal part of the night, although he had already raped me several times. This time he told me to get on my stomach and I thought that was odd. And so he, he sodomized me and that was very brutal and I screamed and he stopped immediately and got up and went over to his backpack and got out this jar of some sort of pink cream and put it all over himself and came back and said, he whispered it in my ear. He said, I have sisters. And that just sent a chill through my body. I knew he had been abusing his sisters forever. So he finished that, told me to get up, told me he was hungry. We were gonna eat. So he marched me back to my closet, told me to get dressed. I put on jeans and a shirt and knowing that I was gonna drive him the 17 miles through vacant desert I put on, I started to put on my boots and he said, no, 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 wear these. And he pointed to a pair of flip flops. So I got an understanding that his intention was indeed to kill me somewhere along that empty stretch of 17 miles. 
So he told me to fix him something to eat. I did. There was three-day-old coffee sitting on the stove. I heated it up, hoping he would choke on it. I um, made a sandwich and um, brought it to him. I, I looked all over my kitchen for maybe a, a weapon I could use to help myself get away, and there was nothing, really. He kept his eyes on me, totally. So I brought him the food, and he said, aren't you going to eat? Uh, no, I'm not hungry. So he ate his sandwich, drank his coffee, and said, let's go. So we walked down the sidewalk out to my truck. He stayed behind me. Now, all night, he had been wielding this butcher knife that he stole from my kitchen. And even when he raped me in my bedroom, the knife was right above my head on the, on the top of the bed headboard. So he stayed behind me with his knife. I knew he had it. I got in on the driver's side. He had my keys. I waited for a minute. He wasn't getting in on the passenger side. And then finally he opened that door and he slid in with the knife in his right hand where I couldn't see it. And he slid it under his right leg. He was being very surreptitious and keeping his eyes fixed on my eyes. But I thought, how odd. He's been wielding this knife all night long, threatening to kill me with it. And now he's hiding the knife? This almost childlike behavior from Jason's assailant comes up repeatedly. It's one of the tougher ironies to reconcile. This man was simultaneously so cruel and also in some ways as simple as a child. Why now? And then it truly dawned on me because he is going to kill you and he doesn't want you to know it. And so now I had a decision to make. I could turn left out of my driveway and go the 17 miles to Lajitas, or I could turn right and try to make it to the EMT building that was just up half a mile. And if I made it to that building, I could hit the accelerator and run into the wall of that building and it would awaken the EMT technicians and they would come out and help me. So I told him, I, I said, don't you want to go to my office where I can get you some more money? And he sort of looked at me and I said, the post office, Oficina Postal, that I had a lot of money there. So I turned right while I was telling him about the post office and this money. And I didn't know if he knew where the post office was or not. But the post office was between me and the EMT. It couldn't have been a hundred yards away. And I was hoping he didn't know it. So I made it to the EMT office, still talking to him, telling him there were money orders there. I would help him fill them out. He would have all this money, thousands of dollars. And um, I turned into the driveway of the EMT. And that's when I remembered that the son of one of the EMTs had his bed against that wall on the inside. And then I could not ram that wall. By this time, he was screaming, this is the medics. Aquí es médico, es médico. Uh, that it wasn't the post office. 
And uh, so he's screaming. So I turn away to go back out of the driveway. Again, I have the choice. Go right to the nearest little cafe that's about two miles up the road or take my chances on the 17 miles of desolation going to the river. The owner of the restaurant lived behind the restaurant in a mobile home. I chose to go right and I chose to keep him listening to my conversation. Well, what do you want to do? Do you want the money or not? Do you want me to go to the post office or not? I, I don't know what you want me to do. And giving him all of these different choices and things to think about until I got up to the road where the restaurant was. And at this point, he realized we were way away from going south to the river and so as I turned into the restaurant and saw that there were two gas pumps in front of the restaurant I knew that if I floored the truck and headed for the gas pumps that possibly the truck would run into the pumps the truck would explode and I would be able to jump out hopefully that was my plan and so he's screaming at me to turn around, turn around. And I said, okay, and things were heating up and I slammed my foot down on the accelerated, headed for the gas pump, found the door handle of the truck, opened my door to jump out. And as I looked behind me, he was lunging at me and the steering wheel with a knife in one hand. I was out. I hit the ground. My knees almost gave out, and the voice said, oh no, you're not going down now. And I just stood up and raced toward the mobile home of the owner. I ripped off the screen door. They found it, they said, 50 feet out in the desert. I pulled so hard on the sliding door, I broke the lock. And the next thing I remembered, I was inside his home yelling, get your gun, get your gun, help me, help me. Next time on Borderline, Jason has escaped her assailant, but now must wonder where he is as she deals with the aftermath of his crime. We'll hear from the other people affected by this story as they intersect with Jason immediately after this event. Jason's assailant is apprehended right on the border, and law enforcement from the United States and Mexico have to decide who gets him. As the stalemate lingers, a crowd on both sides begins to form. Within this powder keg of tension, something has to give, and it does. That's next time. I'm Paget Brewster, and this is Borderline. Borderline is a production of Voyage Media. The series is based on Jason's book, Borderline, A True Story of Courage and Justice, available on Amazon. A link is in the show notes. You can help support Borderline by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. This helps spread word about the show. And subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. 
Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing that the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution, Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.